was Friday, January 30th, 1987, when 25-year-old Velma Lynn Hill mysteriously disappeared from her mother's home on West 37th Street, Los Angeles, close to University Park. The following day, detectives were told by the missing woman's brother, 23-year-old Kevin Roby, that his sister had been kidnapped and that he had witnessed it. He told them that she had been taken away by a gang of men dressed as ninja warriors. Roby agreed to walk the detectives through the crime scene. During the walkthrough, they found his sister's dead body in a large trash can. In the same year, and nine miles northwest, a promising student named Lloyd Avery II graduated from Beverly Hills High School. Few people are familiar with the name Lloyd Avery II, but many will remember the actor's small role in John Singleton's 1991 film Boys in the Hood. He was a gang member, credited only as Knucklehead Number 2, who shot and killed Morris Chestnut's character, Ricky Baker, in a neighbourhood of Crenshaw, Los Angeles. Lloyd Fernandez Avery II was born on June 21, 1969. He grew up in a quiet neighbourhood in View Park and had a Christian upbringing. After graduating from Beverly Hills, where he excelled in sports, he attended the Los Angeles Trade Technical College, but dropped out soon afterwards. As well as being a once promising athlete, he was a music producer, who worked closely with Quincy Jones III, also known as QD3. He was also an aspiring actor. After landing the role in Boys in the Hood, Avery moved out of the middle-class neighbourhood where he'd lived with his family, and relocated to an area of Crenshaw, well known for its affiliation with the Blood Gang, a long-standing gang with divisions all over Los Angeles. He said that he moved to the neighbourhood for real-life acting inspiration. Despite his newfound gang affiliation, Lloyd continued to work as an actor, landing roles in a 1992 episode of Doogie Howser MD, another John Singleton film 1993's Poetic Justice, the 1996 spoof flick Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, and 2000's Lockdown. In April of 1999, Avery was involved in an altercation at the old Santa Barbara Plaza shopping centre with members of the Islamic Centre. Avery returned to the plaza late that night and threw a concrete water meter through the window. A shootout followed, but there were no fatalities. On July 1st of the same year, Avery and an unnamed accomplice approached a woman named Annette Lewis on Buckingham Road in the Crenshaw district. Without warning, Avery shot Lewis five times with a large calibre handgun. He also shot a witness, 55-year-old Percy Branch. Annette Lewis died that day, and Percy Branch died from his injuries three weeks later on July 23rd. His role as a character named G-Ride in a movie called Shot, released in 2001, would be his last. Shortly after filming for Shot Wrapped in 1999, Avery was arrested for the double murder. His last night as a free man was spent with his younger brother Shay at their grandmother's house on Crescent Heights Boulevard. His brother said that during a conversation that night, Avery asked, Do you want to hear something really scary? Shay had heard whispers that the LAPD were tracking his brother, but he didn't know why. Afraid of what his brother would say, he cut the conversation short, and nothing more was mentioned. The next morning, the LAPD descended on the house. Avery was in the kitchen at the time, and before he left through the back door with his pushbike, he gave his brother one last hug. Avery made his way up Crescent Heights Boulevard and pulled up alongside a police cruiser. He brazenly leaned forward and asked the officer what's up. 
He then quickly sped west in a futile attempt to elude the pursuing car. As he did, he collided with another patrol vehicle before being placed under arrest. While Avery awaited trial, he was incarcerated at the Los Angeles County Jail. During this time, he befriended chaplain of the jail, Dennis Clark, and turned to religion. At his trial, Avery was found guilty on both counts of murder and was transferred to Pelican Bay State Prison, where he remained for the next few years. But due to credibility issues with eyewitnesses, the fact that the murder weapon was never found, and the bullet casings were accidentally destroyed by the forensics team, he was granted a retrial. While awaiting his retrial, Avery was housed at the North County Correctional Facility, 40 miles northwest of downtown Los Angeles. There he spread the word of God, led prayer services on Sundays, gave up all his vices and planned to pursue a music career. But this wasn't to be. In July of 2005, Avery was again found guilty at his retrial. On his return to Pelican Bay, he shared a cell with a 40-year-old man named Kevin Roby. You may remember Kevin Roby from the beginning of this segment. After directing detectives to the body of his sister in 1987, he was found guilty of her rape and murder the following year, and handed three life sentences. Roby, a paranoid schizophrenic and Satan worshipper, had by now served 17 years at Pelican Bay. Kevin Roby and Lloyd Avery often clashed due to their opposing faiths, but Avery continued to preach God's word to his cellmate. He even wrote to his friend Chaplain Dennis Clark to tell him that he believed that he had been sent to Kevin Roby by God in order to save him. On Sunday, September 4th, 2005, Lloyd Avery returned to the cell, following a church service, to find that Roby had drawn a pentangle on the floor. In an act of defiance, he began to preach to Roby once again, but this time a violent fight ensued, one which proved to be fatal. Lloyd Avery II died in his shared cell that day. As with any prison, there are numerous daily inmate counts at Pelican Bay, but somehow, despite the 11 counts which took place in the 48 hours that followed his death, which included standing counts, Lloyd Avery's dead body went unnoticed each time. It wasn't until the morning of September 6th when Kevin Roby laid Avery's body on the pentangle and began to perform a satanic ritual that officers discovered his body. Roby was handcuffed while Avery's body was taken to the prison infirmary. Despite the fact that his body was already decomposing, CPR was reportedly administered for 10 minutes. His nose was fractured and there was a one and a half inch abrasion on his temple. The cause of death was given as inhalation of blood, with strangulation and a skull fracture also given as possible causes. Avery's family were not satisfied with the coroner's explanation and paid for a private autopsy. This time the cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma caused by a flat surface such as a hammer, complicated by inhalation of blood. When an investigation was launched, the Inspector General's Bureau of Independent Review deemed that the security within Pelican Bay and their handling of the crime scene was inadequate. Kevin Roby pleaded guilty to the murder of Lloyd Avery and was sent into solitary confinement. Another life sentence was suggested, but District Attorney Mike Reese concluded that Roby's fate was sealed as he was already serving three. He said, I want the guy to be punished for what he did but it's ironic that once I file, he'll get better treatment than the average prisoner. If it were a death penalty case, we wouldn't be having this discussion. 
But Lloyd Avery's family were suspicious of the circumstances of death, believing that correctional officers were directly involved. They also questioned why a born-again Christian and a Satanist were put in the same cell to begin with. Kevin Roby at one time had a strict single-cell status, because he practiced Satanism, but when the decision was made to terminate that status in November of 2002, Roby disputed it, and even fought a legal battle to get the single-cell status reinstated. It was on September 2, 2005, two days before Avery's death, that Roby was told by his lawyer to desist with the case and accept his shared cell status. Shortly after his death, Lloyd Avery's brother found a movie script that Lloyd had been working on. The script included a scene in which a prisoner who was assaulted in a cell overcame his attacker killing him and then concealing his body under a sheet for two days. In the 1970s, Steve Austin, or the Six Million Dollar Man, was a pop culture icon. The popular TV series ran from 1974 until 1978, and included 99 episodes. On December 8, 1976, production for episode 74, Carnival of Spies, was underway at Queen's Park, also known as the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach. During filming inside the Laugh in the Dark attraction building, what was thought to be a wax mannequin hanging from a noose was removed from the set. When the arm of the human form fell off, exposing bone and muscle tissue, the story of Elmer McCurdy began to gradually unfold. Elmer J. McCurdy was born in Washington, Maine in 1880. He had a troubled childhood. His mother, 17-year-old Sadie McCurdy, was embarrassed by young Elmer because he was an illegitimate child. She sent him to live with her brother George and his wife Helen, but when George died of consumption in 1890, Elmer moved with his mother and Helen to Bangor. As a young man, Elmer discovered that Sadie was his mother and not Helen, as he'd been led to believe. The news made him resentful of both women, so he moved out and went to live with his grandfather. Sadie McCurdy died of a ruptured ulcer in 1900. In the same year, Elmer's grandfather also died. These events forced Elmer McCurdy onto a new path in life. Feeling that there was nothing left for him in Maine, he headed southwest, eventually arriving in Kansas. In 1907 he joined the army. After an honourable discharge in 1910, McCurdy found it difficult to support himself by honest means and turned to crime. He had learned a little about the use and effects of nitroglycerine during his army years, so incorporated this knowledge, albeit seldom successfully, into his crimes. In March of 1911 in Lenapar, Oklahoma, McCurdy and three other men attempted to rob the Iron Mountain Missouri Pacific train after hearing that a safe containing $4,000 was on board. They held up the train and located the safe, but McCurdy, using too much nitroglycerine, destroyed the safe, along with the majority of the money. $450 in silver coins remained, most of which had melted and fused to the inside of the safe. In September of 1911, McCurdy and his men robbed the Citizens Bank in Chautauqua, Kansas. He placed a nitroglycerine charge at the door of the bank's vault, but the explosion had no effect on the safe inside the vault. After the bungled robbery that only yielded $150 in coins, the men caught a train to the Kansas border. McCurdy made his way to a ranch belonging to his friend Charlie Rivard at Bartlesville, close to the Caney River. There he hid out in a hay shed for several weeks. 
McCurdy's final robbery took place on October 4th, 1911, near Okisa, Oklahoma. McCurdy and two accomplices planned to rob a train after hearing that it contained $400,000 that was intended as a royalty payment to the Osage Nation. The men rode up on horseback and stopped the train before realising it was the wrong one. Not wanting to go away empty-handed, they robbed the passengers, coming away with only $46, two jugs of whiskey, an automatic revolver, a jacket and a watch. McCurdy returned to Rivard's ranch on October 6th, but by now he had been implicated in the recent train robbery, and a $2,000 reward was offered for his capture. On the morning of October 7th, three sheriffs, Bob and Stringer Fenton and Dick Wallace, along with a pack of bloodhounds, tracked McCurdy to the ranch. Bob Fenton recalled that at around 7am McCurdy fired the first shot. The gunfight that followed lasted for an hour before the first and only fatal shot rang out. McCurdy had been hit in the chest and killed by a single bullet, his body was taken to the undertaker Joseph L. Johnson in Port Husker, Oklahoma. Johnson embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative and stored it in the back of the funeral home. As time went by and McCurdy's body remained unclaimed, Johnson dressed the corpse in street clothes, placed a rifle in its hands, and stood it up in the corner of the funeral home. He called the exhibit the bandit who wouldn't give up, and charged spectators a fee to see it. McCurdy's corpse became a popular attraction, and Johnson received numerous offers from carnival promoters to buy the corpse, but all were refused. In October of 1916, a man calling himself Ava visited Joseph Johnson claiming to be McCurdy's brother from California. Suspicious of the claim, Johnson demanded proof, so Ava contacted the sheriff and a local attorney, returning the next day with another man named Wayne, who also claimed to be McCurdy's brother, with a signed affidavit to get custody of the body. Johnson released the body on the promise that it would be shipped to San Francisco for a proper burial. It was instead shipped to Arkansas City, Kansas. The men who claimed to be McCurdy's long-lost brothers were in fact James and Charles Patterson, of the great Patterson Carnival shows. After hearing about the popular corpse exhibit, the two concocted a plan to take possession of the body and to feature it in their carnival. They exhibited McCurdy's corpse as the outlaw who would never be captured alive, until 1922, when the exhibit was sold to a man named Louis Sonny. Louis Sonny used McCurdy's corpse in his travelling museum of crime, and in 1933, the corpse was used to promote Dwayne Esper's film Narcotic. The corpse was placed in the lobby of theatres, with Esper claiming that it belonged to a drug addict who had committed suicide while surrounded by police. With the body now completely mummified, Dwayne Esper claimed that the skin's deterioration was due to the dead man's drug-fueled life. Following Sonny's death in 1949, the corpse was kept in storage in Los Angeles until 1964, when Louis Sonny's son Dan lent the corpse to filmmaker David F. Friedman, who used it as a prop in his 1967 film She Freak. Four years later, Dan Sonny sold the body to Spoonie Singh, the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. Singh then sold it to the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California, and there it remained until it was discovered eight years later by the $6 million man film crew. After police were called to the set, the corpse was taken to the Los Angeles coroner's office. On December 9th, 1976, an autopsy which revealed incisions from the original autopsy and embalming determined that the body belonged to a male who had died of a gunshot wound to the chest. By now the corpse was covered in wax and phosphorus paint. Some hair was still visible on the head, 
but the ears, big toes and fingers were missing. Further tests showed the presence of arsenic, which was a component of embalming fluid until the late 1920s. Tuberculosis was also found in the lungs, which McCurdy had developed while working as a miner, along with bunions and scars that he was documented to have had. There was no sign of the bullet though. The assumption was that it had been removed during the original autopsy, although the bullet jacket was found. Inside the mouth was a 1924 penny and a ticket stub to Louis Sonny's Museum of Crime. It was Dan Sonny who, when contacted, confirmed that the body was that of Elmer McCurdy. Final confirmation of identity came when radiographs were taken of the skull and then placed over a photo of McCurdy taken at the time of his death. In 1976, Elmer McCurdy's story was featured in newspapers and on television and radio. Several funeral homes offered to bury McCurdy free of charge, but officials decided to wait for any living relatives to come forward and claim the body. This did not happen though, and on April 17th of 1977, the body of Elmer McCurdy was buried next to outlaw Bill Doolan at the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. To ensure that McCurdy's body was not disturbed again, two feet of concrete was poured on top of the casket. It was September 10th, 2002, when police discovered the decomposed, almost completely skeletal body of Gary Lee Ober. He was lying in the bathtub of his apartment in Glen Park, a residential area of San Francisco. There had been no sign of 56-year-old Gary Ober for weeks, but his partner, 38-year-old James McKinnon, had been seen in and around the apartment by a friend and neighbour, Stephanie Henry. When she asked what had happened to her friend, McKinnon claimed that Ober had won a Disney cruise and that he was house-sitting for him while he was away. Henry asked how she could contact Ober, but was told from a partially open door that there were no phone lines on any of the cruise ports, so he could not be contacted. When Stephanie Henry returned a few days later, McKinnon said that he had got the cruise dates wrong and that Ober wouldn't be back for another week. It wasn't until the stench of death began to emanate from Ober's apartment and through the plumbing in Stephanie Henry's own bathroom, followed by thousands of flies, that she contacted the San Francisco Police Department. Medical examiner Dr. Boyd Stevens said that there were two clear injuries to Ober's chest, caused by a sharp implement, but it was impossible to know if this is what caused his death because of the extent of the decomposition. A blood-covered knife was also found nearby. On September 13th, homicide investigators Joe Toomey and Holly Pira tracked James McKinnon to a hotel room on 12th Street and arrested him for the murder of Ober. During a jailhouse interview with the Bay Area reporter shortly after his arrest, McKinnon claimed that he had been sexually abused by Ober and acting in self-defence accidentally killed him. McKinnon spent three years in the county jail and upheld the self-defence story at his hearings. He was eventually sentenced on August 12, 2005. Following a plea bargain with the San Francisco's attorney office, in which he pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, McKinnon was ordered to serve a minimum of six years, with three years already served in the county jail. It was a relatively short sentence, for which he was eligible for parole in 2007, with a definite 2008 release date. This caused uproar amongst Gary Ober's friends and family. They said that Ober was known to have a back problem, struggled to get around, and posed no threat to anyone. The most outspoken of Ober's supporters was Frank Franco, 
who had once worked at a bar called The Pendulum in San Francisco's Castro District, which is where Ober and McKinnon first met. Franco said that he couldn't help but feel partly responsible, as he was the one who would introduce them. He said he even allowed McKinnon to live with him for a while, adding that he could just have easily have been killed. Franco also said that McKinnon had been flush with money around the time of Ober's murder, bought rounds of drinks for customers at the Pendulum and other bars in the Castro district, and sold them pain medication and jewellery belonging to Ober. He had also been pawning Ober's rare coin collection. A bag containing a loaded gun and Ober's checkbook was found at a bar called the Midnight Sun sometime in August, after Ober was killed. The bag was turned over to the police, who discovered that McKinnon had forged a number of the checks. The assistant district attorney who worked on the case, Linda Allen, stated that the plea bargain was a good decision, explaining that if the case had gone to trial, the jury may have believed McKinnon's self-defence claim and found him not guilty. She also noted that the blood found on the knife in Ober's apartment did not come from McKinnon or Ober, surmising that the weapon could have been used as a red herring in an attempt to lay the blame on someone else. This wasn't the first time McKinnon had been under the police radar though, he had another 2002 charge brought against him for the abuse of a disabled man, 68-year-old Luther Chatham. McKinnon worked as Chatham's carer for a few months running up to the Gary Ober murder. During that time, he was said to have physically abused and robbed Chatham, forcing him to live in squalor and refusing to clean him for weeks at a time. Many people had hoped that the charge of the abuse of an elder would help guarantee McKinnon a lengthy sentence, However, the charge was dismissed as part of McKinnon's plea deal. He was ordered to pay Chatham restitution for the $8,000 he had stolen with the money he earned while working in prison, but as the most highly skilled prisoners at the time were making $100 a month at the most, it's unlikely that the full amount was ever recovered. Shortly after his sentencing in 2005, McKinnon was transferred to San Quentin State Prison where he remained until 2007, when he was released on good behaviour. This story had a lot of press coverage at the time, but there is a more intimate account of the aftermath of Gary Ober's death in Alan Emmons' 2005 book, Mop Men. A crime scene cleaner named Sean explains that it was his job to clean the bathroom, giving the author a detailed description of the scene he was confronted with and the methods he used to clean it. Sean said that Ober had been there for so long that, by his reckoning, there were three or four generations of flies feeding on the body Sean also explained that James McKinnon had held parties at the apartment while Gary Ober's body lay in a bathtub, keeping his unsuspecting guests from entering the room by telling them that the toilet was broken. This obviously worked, because the body remained there for what Sean believed to be at least four weeks. This is the Monadnock building at 685 Market Street, San Francisco. In 1910, 26-year-old Eva Clara Swan, a former high school teacher, worked here as a stenographer. That is until April 20th, when she stood up from her desk, threw down her keys, and walked out of the building. One day later, no one had seen or heard anything of Eva. Her family became increasingly concerned, so her uncle, Henry Swan, visited Eva's boarding house on Scott Street. He found all of her belongings still there, undisturbed. The same day, her friend Henry Hatch visited her home and left a note. When he returned later, the note was still there and apparently had been untouched. That same day, Eva's family reported her missing, 
it was uncharacteristic for her to leave so suddenly, and they feared the worst. One of the few close friends Eva had was Paul Parker, a Stanford University athlete who lived at the same boarding house. As the days passed, Eva's family suspected that the young man had something to do with her disappearance. A rumour circulated that Eva was at a house in Mill Valley, nine miles north of San Francisco, but when the family paid the neighbourhood a visit, it proved to be a false lead. Months went by with no news, and eventually the case was dropped. Then, on September 19th, the family received a call from the San Francisco Police Department. They had received a tip-off from a man named Ben Gordon. Gordon told them that they would find Eva's dead body two miles south of her home, buried beneath a concrete floor at 327 Eureka Street, a house rented by his employer, Dr. James Grant. Ben Gordon revealed to police that he was owed money by Dr. Grant. This escalated into a rivalry between the pair, which was probably the reason for the tip-off. But rather than question Ben about why he hadn't come forward sooner, the new lead was appreciated, and Officer Edward Wren followed Gordon to the property. The two men made their way through the house, down to a cellar and what looked like a patch of new concrete. More officers were brought to the house and using a crowbar, dug their way to a wooden trunk and the unmistakable smell of death. The men pried it open to find Eva's body bound in old sheets. Her feet and hands had been severed so that she could easily fit into the confined space. Coroner William A. Walsh was called to the scene at around 8pm that evening. What stood out to him was the strong odour of nitric acid, which had deformed most of the facial features. Despite this, Eva's family were quick to identify her. Dr James Grant was arrested on suspicion of murder at his home at 1293 Golden Gate Avenue. A nurse named Marie Messerschmidt was also taken into custody. Both Grant and Messerschmidt claimed ignorance, stating that they were at the Highland Springs Resort 120 miles north of San Francisco, at the time of Eva's disappearance. They had stayed at the resort, claiming to be a married couple, but this was before April 20th, the day Eva went missing. Police now drew their attentions to Paul Parker, the man who lived at the same lodging house as Eva, and the person Eva's family had suspected from the beginning. The choice of wording in a letter addressed to Eva from Parker piqued the officer's interest. It read, If a body writes a body, and a body don't reply, can a body write a body to ask the reason why? It was all very innocent, Parker insisted, telling them that he had last seen Eva in mid-September at the home of Dr James Grant. She was recovering from an illness, he said, but claimed to have no idea what kind of illness it was. So what was Eva Swan doing at the home of Dr James Grant? Nurse Marie Messerschmidt, his assistant, who it turned out had no formal training at all, would eventually fill in the blanks. At first she refused to speak, but her brother-in-law, a man named August Borman, showed her a picture of her recently deceased mother, telling her that if she had any respect for her memory, she would speak the truth. Marie Messerschmidt broke down and revealed everything. The man posing as Dr Grant, she said, was actually Dr Robert Thompson. He was a graduate of Dartmouth and Baltimore Medical College, who after a conviction for counterfeiting in Maryland, had changed his name and moved to California. She claimed that she was forced into working alongside Thompson and said that Eva had first visited the doctor's home at Golden Gate Avenue on April 16th, asking for an abortion to be performed. Dr Thompson agreed to this, gave her an anaesthetic and laid her on a table before Messerschmidt left the room. When she returned later, she helped Eva to a bedroom to rest. 
Eva returned on April 17th and 18th complaining that she felt sick, and since abortion was illegal, she was afraid to go to a legitimate hospital. Dr. Thompson simply advised Eva to return home and rest, which she did, but came back again on April 20th. Marie Messerschmidt took care of Eva, and although her mood was sullen and she was in a great deal of pain, she appeared happier when Paul Parker came to visit. Messerschmidt said that she thought that Parker was likely the would-be father, but this was never discussed with Eva or Paul. Marie claimed that she did everything she could for Eva, but admitted that she knew she would die. Dr. Thompson agreed, and on April 21st he rented the house on Eureka Street and purchased large amounts of nitric acid and a trunk. For 10 days, according to Messerschmidt, Eva suffered with an infection that gave her blood poisoning, and on April 30th, 10 days into her family's search, Eva passed away at around 4am. Dr. Robert Thompson wasted no time in disposing of Eva Swan. He severed her limbs, wrapped her in sheets and placed her in the trunk, before transporting her to the newly rented house on Eureka Street. There, with the help of his office boy William Sack, he attempted to dissolve her body, and then buried her in the cellar, covering her in cement. Thompson was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 years imprisonment at San Quentin State Prison. During the trial, it was revealed that the money owed to Ben Gordon was not a loan at all. It was money he had demanded in return for his silence after learning of Eva's fate. When he demanded more, Dr. Thompson threatened to kill him, which prompted Gordon to go to the police. Dr. Thompson was paroled in 1919 and moved to Boston and then New York, where it is said he continued his career as an abortionist for the next 10 years. Eva Clara Swan, who was born in January of 1884 in Ruby Hill, Nevada, was buried in October 1910 at the Cypress Lawn Memorial Park in Colma, San Francisco. She was exhumed a month later. Her final resting place is unknown. At 7.15am on November 2nd, 1992, housemaid Paula Rojas arrived for work at 5266 Avenue de Maravijas in Rancho Santa Fe, San Diego, the home of the Spiro family. It was 46-year-old Ian Spiro who came to the door to tell her that his wife and children were not home and that there would be no work for her that day. Three days later, on Thursday, November 5th, 40-year-old Gail Spiro her three children, 14-year-old Adam, 16-year-old Sarah and 11-year-old Dina, were found dead by neighbours. All had single gunshot wounds to the head and were thought to have been dead for a few days. Gail Spiro, her husband Ian and their children had previously lived in the Middle East, Canada, France and England, before moving to their rented home in San Diego 18 months prior. Ian Spiro was now nowhere to be seen, but he wasn't an immediate suspect as you might think. You see, it was known by the San Diego Police Department that Spiro, although a commodities broker on the surface, had been involved in hostage negotiations in Lebanon and was a go-between for the CIA in America and the MI6 in the UK. This considered, it was first believed that his family had been the victim of a hitman and that Spiro was now on the run to save his own life. But the fact that there were no signs of a break-in or a struggle of any kind quickly turned some suspicion to Spiro himself. A manhunt began with the belief that Spiro may be armed, but the San Diego Sheriff's Department acknowledged, even at this stage, 
that the entire family may have been victims of, quote, international terrorists. After all, it had been reported the year before that Ian Spiro had defrauded a number of Iranian business partners before leaving for London and then moving to California. Two days later, on November 9th, the body of 46-year-old Ian Spiro was found, 75 miles from the family home, locked inside a Ford Explorer in the Anza Borrego Desert. The car was found by passing campers one mile from the main road. The keys were locked inside and there were no obvious signs of bodily trauma, although a US TV station had initially reported that the body had been decapitated, which it had not. An autopsy that same day failed to reveal the cause of death, but traces of cyanide were later found in a small container in the car. A toxicology report revealed that this was in fact what killed him. Just over a month later, on December 13th, two rain-soaked suitcases and a briefcase were found in a desert canyon close to where Spiro's body was found. They held numerous documents and a tape recording of what is believed to be Spiro's last words. The exact contents of that recording were not released, but police said that, although Spiro did not directly say that he killed his family, his words clearly expressed that he had been sapped of his will to live due to money problems. The San Diego Union Tribune wrote, The Spiro tape clearly indicates to anyone who listens that he offed his family. The Spiro family had in fact fallen into debt. A note was found on the door of their home from an estate agent asking why the $4,500 rent had not been paid. In light of this, along with the tape recording, police quickly came to the conclusion that Ian Spiro was under a great deal of financial pressure, and so killed his family and then himself. During a memorial service for the family in San Diego, Ian Spiro's brother-in-law, Ken Corton, said that Ian had spoken of a threatening phone call a week before the death of the family. Ian had told him that things had, quote, come back to haunt me, and if you want to know what it is, read the book by Terry Waite. He was referring to his dealings in the Middle East with hostage negotiations, more specifically his support of Terry Waite's efforts to free Western hostages before Waite himself was captured in 1987. Terry Waite's book, Taken on Trust, does mention Spiro's name and his involvement in US and UK intelligence very briefly, but the book was not published until 1993. It's more likely he was referring to Con Coughlin's 1992 book, Hostage, which openly states that Spiro used his connections in Lebanon to arrange meetings between Terry Waite and Iranian-backed jihad kidnappers. Quarton told the San Diego Tribune that he believed the entire family were murdered while they slept because of this affiliation, even suggesting that the CIA, rather than Iranian assassins, may have been responsible. As well as Terry Waite, Spiro had been linked to another figure who sought the freedom of Western hostages in Iran. It was US Marine Colonel Oliver North. North was at the centre of the Iran-Contra scandal of 1986, the scandal came to light when it was discovered that President Reagan was selling missiles to Iran, then governed by Ayatollah Khomeini, to fund the war in Nicaragua. The official justification for the deal was that it was part of an operation to free seven US hostages being held in Lebanon. But Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North formulated the second part of the plan, which was to divert some money from the arms sales to support the Contra rebel groups in Nicaragua. Ian Spiro's name was reportedly found amongst documents belonging to Oliver North, detailing a deal with the Contra rebels. The same week the Spiro family died, a business partner of Ian's, a man named Robert Corson, who had been indicted in a savings and loan scam, 
was found dead in a Texas motel room from a reported heart attack. According to the Blade Citizen newspaper, Corson had personally delivered money to the Contra rebels in South America. It was later revealed that six other people, all linked to the Iran-Contra scandal, had died across the US in the last 12 years. So whether it was Ian Spiro himself who wiped out the entire family due to financial pressure, or a hitman because of his links to hostage negotiations and or political scandal, the demise of the Spiro family was officially declared a murder-suicide. The story given by housemaid Paula Rojas, who was turned away from the house by Ian Spiro at the same time the family were thought to have died, certainly supports this. Ian Spiro was cremated in California, and on Thursday, November 26, 1992, the bodies of Gail Spiro and her children, along with the ashes of their father, were buried at St. Catherine's Church in Eskdale, Cumbria, England, where Gail Spiro, once Gail Brunskill, had spent her childhood. Ian Spiro's marriage to Gail Brunskill was his second. He had two other daughters from a previous marriage who were living in London at the time of his death. 